Reflections on Herman Melville's Moby Dick by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 7 Finally, however, Ahab does relent and uh, they bring the cast up uh, or they go down into the hold and begin to uh, repair the leaks. And the main worker in this activity is Queequeg. And in the course of doing this, Queequeg is, is struggling and working and toiling away down in this hot, humid hole. And he comes down with a fever. I think Melville, by the way, I just want to say this, I think Melville, in this little scene of Queequeg trying to save, uh, we, we, we know that, that from other instances in, in the text that that sperm oil really is the the precious stuff that has been that has been extricated and made available for culture. And so when Queequeg is down there struggling away to save it, um, I'm not altogether sure Melville didn't identify with him. Uh, Melville, uh, a, a physic, uh, literally and, and metaphorically, had some fits of fever uh, trying to do the same kind of work. And so I think there's a little identification with what Queequeg's trying to do. Well, Queequeg comes down with a fever and he thinks he's going to die. So we have at least in, uh, a faint allusion to the same condition that Ahab is in. A condition that looks uh, like some fundamental change is going to have to take place. Queequeg is now on the, on the threshold of death. Now, Queequeg is a pagan, uh, but his uh, process is more... in instinctively the Christian one of dying and rising. So Queequeg says, build me a coffin. Ahab had said, build me a titan. And Queequeg says, build me a coffin. I'm going to die. He gets in the coffin and there is a tiny little scene which I think is, the importance of which is way out of proportion to its size in which Queequeg lying in his coffin, Pip comes over, and we must keep this in mind when we get to the later scenes with Pip in it, Pip comes over and reaches in and takes hold of Queequeg's hand, and in his other hand is a tambourine. Now, uh, Pip has never been a better Christian than at that moment. He's holding the hand of the dying Queequeg in one hand and holding his tambourine in the other. And Queequeg recovers. <laughs> Queequeg recovers. Queequeg rallies. And so now that the, the uh, coffin is no longer needed, and so he says, uh, 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 Queequeg decides that he's going to, to uh, turn it into a sea chest to put his things in, and he begins carving on it. And here's what the text says. It seemed that hereby he was striving in his rude way to copy parts of the twisted tattooing on his body. And this tattooing had been the work of a departed prophet and seer of his island, who, by those hieroglyphic marks, had written out on his body a complete theory of the heavens and the earth, and a mystical treatise on the art of attaining truth, so that Queequeg, in his own proper person, was a riddle to unfold, a wondrous work in one volume, but whose mysteries not even himself could read though his own live heart beat against them. And these mysteries were therefore destined in the end to molder away with the living parchment whereon they were inscribed and so be unsolved to the last. Again, it's a reference to the, uh, to, the, to the work of art. The work of art is to take that inscrutable mystery which is imprinted in the, in the being and consciousness of each of us and because it is imprinted that way, like the tattooing on Queequeg, we can't get access to it. And we get access to it through a work of art. And so Queequeg here is making this work of art as a part of the, the ongoing human business of deciphering the mystery of existence. Putting it out there where it can, be, where it can last and where it can be pondered. It is not, by the way, an immortality project, uh, to, to use uh, Ernst Becker's term. It's not an immortality project. There's absolutely no hint here that Queequeg is carving on this 
on this chest, chest-coffin, because he's trying to leave some monument to himself. Quite the contrary. He's simply trying to produce evidence. But it is not uh, for his own sake. That impulse, by the way, to produce evidence is the, is, is the sacred one. Uh, and, it, and it's thanks to that that we have culture. All you have to do is put a slight spin on it and it becomes an immortality project and then it goes sour. But the impulse to produce evidence is something else. Well, Ahab, uh, Ahab ha has come to the end of his rope. Uh, well, not quite. He's going to get to the end of his rope at, at, at the end of the book. But he has, um, his, his, he's spiritually bankrupt. And at the point of being, and so what we could do, we could go through the rest of this text and see uh, almost a checklist of the of the disaster as it as as it plums the his being. The disaster is that he is at the point where it requires a conversion, and he refuses it. And every, at every refusal, uh, the stakes are raised, and the consequences grow. Um, and one of the one of one of the things that happens is if I have um, you know that passage in as I've said before often uh, in um, Houston Smith's uh, Religions of Man where he says there comes a I think he's quoting Huxley there comes a point when uh, when, when one asks even of Beethoven even of Shakespeare is this all well the, the option at that point when one has that experience one can either uh, Submit to a conversion, or one can take the Faustian option. If this is all, let's cut a deal. If this is all, let's cut a deal with the devil and produce some pyrotechnics to make it more interesting. You see, that's the Faustian way out of that bankruptcy or sterility. And there's a little Faustian scene here. We've already had the. We, we're going to have Lear, and we've already had the Grail King, and now we've got Faust and Mephistopheles. In the Whale Watch chapter, Fadala and Ahab speak, and Fadala reassures Ahab. Fadala tells Ahab the future. And he says, you are going to die by... Only hemp is going to be able to kill you. You're going to die the way I'm going to die. I'm going to die before you, and I'm going to return to appear to you before you die. And this is all reassuring to Ahab, but most of all what's reassuring is that is that Fadala can tell the future. And so Ahab says that Fadala is his pilot. He turns himself over to Fadala in that sense. You are now my pilot. And of course, as soon as he does that, he can do away with his other instruments of orientation. He's turned himself over to Fadala. So in the next chapter, chapter 118, the quadrant, which is absolutely essential to the psychological understanding of the disaster of Ahab's life. Remember in the triwork scene, Ishmael had said, Look not too long in the face of fire, old man. Fire is throughout this text uh, the symbol of that raw, consuming, devastating kind of uh, energy which, which must be transformed by human beings. Otherwise, we just get consumed by it. So in the quadrant scene, Ahab is consulting his quadrant. Ahab's quadrant was furnished with colored glasses through which to take sight of the solar fire. So the quadrant uh, takes a reading on the sun so you can tell where you are on the sea. But it has one of those little pieces of purple glass in it so you can look at the sun. It's very important symbolism here, that little piece of purple glass. And Ahab is looking through it at the sun to take a reading on where he is. And the text says, the Parsi was kneeling beneath him on the ship's deck and with face thrown up like Ahab's was eyeing the same sun with him, only the lids of his eyes half hooded their orbs and his wild face was subdued to an unearthly passionlessness. Passionlessness. And he's looking directly at the sun. And Ahab, gazing at his quadrant, here's what the text says, then gazing at his quadrant, 
and handling one after the other of its numerous Kabbalistical contrivances, he pondered again and muttered, Foolish toy, baby's plaything of haughty admirals and commodores and captains, the world brags of thee, of thy cunning and might. But what, after all, canst thou do but tell the poor pitiful point where thou thyself happenest to be on this wide planet and the hand that holds thee? No, not one jot more. Thou canst not tell where one drop of water or one grain of sand will be tomorrow noon. You see, here's the Faustian deal. This old reliable instrument for determining where I am won't do anymore now that I've met someone who can tell me where I'm going to be. And so he trades that which can reliably tell him where he is for that which can, in some mysterious way, tell him where he's going to be, tell him his future. Curse thee, thou quadrant, dashing it to the deck. No longer will I guide my earthly way by thee. The level ship's compass and the level dead reckoning by log and by line, these shall conduct me and show me my place on the sea. I, lighting from the boat to the deck, thus I trample on thee, thou paltry thing that feebly pointest on high, thus I split and destroy thee. Thou paltry thing which feebly pointest on high. That thing which can, in, in however flawed a way, can at least point to this transcendent. But it won't tell him what tomorrow is going to be, so it's not good enough, and he tramples on it. And so we won't miss the fact that this is a Faustian deal he's just cut, although this language is more more Miltonic than, than that of Goethe or, or Marlowe. As the frantic old man thus spoke and thus trampled with his live and dead feet, a sneering triumph that seemed meant for Ahab and a fatalistic despair that seemed meant for himself, these passed over the mute, motionless Parsi's face. Unobserved, he rose and glided away. You get that, you get that serpent-like image. Glided is such a big word for Milton in Paradise Lost. It's, it's, it's used even when it's not re referring literally to the serpent as that, as that insinuation of evil into life. A sneering triumph that seemed meant for Ahab. A sneering triumph. Aha. He's mine. And a fatalistic despair that seemed meant for himself. And he glided away. In so many things that we've studied here over the months and years, it's, it's been pointed out symbolically that the worst evil can do is parody the truth. And there's another version of this here. Ahab looks through the purple glass to see the sun, this feeble uh, and flawed instrument for putting him in touch with something transcendent, which is if he tries to look at it un un uh, in an unmediated way, will make a monster of him. He throws that away because he doesn't want to tolerate that little purple glass. And when he throws it away, he says, foolish toy, baby's plaything. Okay? Well, here's what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. So you see, this is, this is Pauline doctrine. The devil quoting scripture. This is the devil quoting scripture. That same impulse was become demonic. For one thing, he refuses to recognize that he's still a child, which is a very healthy thing to keep in mind for all of us. Well, having thrown away his quadrant, then there is the storm scene. And I, I say the storm scene. There have been storms in this book before. This is the storm scene. This is the one that um, one's waiting for. This is Act 3 of Lear. Uh, 
This is uh, that storm scene in, in the chapter called The Candles. And the storm is the symbolic transformation crisis. It's the great, it's where push comes to shove finally. And all of the props are, are thrown away. And one has to, uh, has to discover life in the raw. And there's a typhoon, and there's lightning, and there's this uh, strange thing that happens at sea and in, in great plains where there are high, you know, protrusions into the sky called St. Elmo's Fire, or here called corpusence. Corpusence is the way it's supposed to be. It comes from corpus santo, meaning holy bodies. What it is is that they, these high points begin to glow with all the, the charged atmosphere. They, they begin to glow in these strange colors. And so that's happening in the middle of this storm. And we get a hint of what it's really happening when, when the text says this. All the yard, get the Trinitarian uh, insistence here. All the yard arms were tipped with a pallid fire. Remember fires, what fire is. And touched at each tri-pointed lightning rod end with three tapering white flames. Each of the three tall masts was silently burning in, in that sulfurous air. The devil always smells like sulfur. In that sulfurous air, like three gigantic wax tapers before an altar. Interesting illusion. This is a black mass. What is going on is a black mass. One of the reasons we know that is because there's this little tiny reference to the fact that the Parsi is kneeling. Fadala is kneeling. Ahab put his foot upon the Parsi. And with fixed upward eye and high-flung right arm, he stood erect before the lofty tri-pointed trinity of flame. Black man. And now what's he going to say? The storm comes. The storm comes and pelts us. And the question is, what's the response? Well, I'll mention Lear's, you know, Lear's response. But it is so crucial in that Lear's the greatest tragedy, I think, in the history of literature is King Lear. I mean, from my experience, maybe someday somebody will show me another one. Sophocles is close. But, and it comes down to that storm scene. And it's the point where Lear, who was the king, becomes Lear, who is a man. And here's the point where it's available for Ahab. But what does he do? He props himself up on the kneeling Fadala and he looks up waving his fist at the skies and says, I now know thee, thou clear spirit, and I now know that thy right worship is defiance. Come in thy lowest form of love and I will kneel and kiss thee. But at thy highest come as mere supernal power, and though thou launchest navies of full-freighted worlds, there's that in here that still remains indifferent. He's got the world upside down. He says the lowest form is love, the highest form is power. Got it absolutely upside down. The, the reason for the crucifixion was to turn it right side up again. He's got it upside down. The crew, Starbuck tries to stop him. The, the crew raises a half-mutinous cry. His harpoon catches fire, and he brandishes it in front of the crew until they're whipped back into, uh, into uh, compliance. When the weather returns to normal, there is this observation. In a severe gale like this, while the ship is but a tossed shuttlecock to the blast, it is by no means uncommon to see the needles in the compasses at intervals go round and round. It was thus with the Pequods. At almost every shock, the helmsman had, had not failed to notice the whirling velocity with which they revolved upon the cards. It is a sight that hardly anyone can behold without some sort of unwanted emotion. You ever go up there thinking you're going to see where you are and you look down that thing going, whoom, whoom, whoom. <laughs> What's that kind of situation? And Starbuck thinks he might kill him, but then he doesn't. It's a scene reminiscent, a scene that couldn't have been written except by someone who had read that scene in Hamlet where Hamlet uh, doesn't kill uh, Claudius because he's at prayer. 
He doesn't kill Ahab because he's sleeping. The next, I'm going through these quickly because there's so much to cover. The next uh, chapter, the needle, the compass. We got rid of the quadrant, and now the compass. And Ahab, it's early morning. It's morning. He's looking over the side of the ship. He's looking east. He thinks he is, and then suddenly he realizes the sun's coming up behind him. He goes to the steersman. He says, "Hey, which way were you heading?" And uh, he says, "East, southeast." And he said, uh, "Hell, we are." Look at the sun coming up over there. And there's pandemonium, confusion. And the needle had been, the compass had been, uh, had been uh, thrown out by the electrical storm. And it says, the needle, after such storms, the needle never again of itself recovers the original virtue thus martyr lost. And if the binnacle compasses be affected... The same fate reaches all others that may be in the ship, even where the lowermost one inserted, even where the lowermost one inserted into the keelson. I think he's talking about the crew, really, there, there, where, where Ahab's internal compass has been destroyed, and he's he's in charge of the whole crew, and theirs is likewise. But Ahab's undaunted. He says, Ahab is lord over the level lodestone. He says, get me a needle. I'm going to fix this thing. But he's not really interested in the compass. He's got Fadala. He's only mildly interested in the compass. It seems to have another interest. And the text says, accessory perhaps to the impulse dictating the thing he was now about to do were certain prudential motives whose object might have been to revive the spirits of his crew by a stroke of his subtle skill. And so he takes the needle and he makes a new compass. Abashed glances of servile wonder were exchanged by the sailors. In fixing it, what he does, remember magnetism is, is the symbol of what he's done to the crew. He's not remagnetizing the needle so much as he is remagnetizing the crew. Because they had thrown up a half-mutinous cry. And he was going to put a stop to that. So he performed this feat of, uh, of uh, dexterity. And the text says, one after another they peered in to this new compass. For nothing but their own eyes could persuade such ignorance as was theirs. And one after another they slunk away. The despair that's in there, they slunk away. In his fiery eyes of scorn and triumph, you then saw Ahab in all his fatal pride. Bankrupt, his false leg stabbed him in the groin, impotent, Sterile, refusing resurrections, um, not submitting to, not experiencing some kind of conversion, opening himself to that, relying on Fadala. First the, the uh, quadrant goes, then the compass goes, now the log and the line. That's another, the log and the line, you, the log is thrown out, there are knots on it. One measures, that's, how, that's why we have the term knots, how fast these knots go by. Uh, the log in the line tells you how fast you're going in terms of how fast you're leaving something behind. And I think that's an important symbolic uh, reference here. Measuring one's speed by how fast one is leaving something behind. And this chapter has to be seen in parallel to the monkey rope chapter. Ishmael and Queequeg were tethered permanently, that is to say, fixed together for better or for worse until death do them part by the monkey rope. This chapter starts out as though it's just about the log and line. But then we'll see what it's really about. They throw out the log and line and because it has been unused and sat on the deck and weathered, the, li the, the, the line has uh, rotted and it breaks. And Ahab says, I crushed the quadrant, the thunder turns the needles, and now the mad sea parts the log line, but Ahab can mend all. So he decides to mend it. The Manx man, who always has an interesting comment, says, There he goes now. To him nothing's happened, but to me the skewer seems loosening out of the middle of the world. 
To him, nothing's happened. Oh, we can fix that. Well, now we're going to see why it's called, why the log and line is such an interesting chapter. Very short chapter, but central to everything. Because it sets up a dynamic that's going to go on for a while in the text. Okay, the, just keep in mind, the line just broke and it's been lost. The, the log is now floating in the wake of the Pequod, right? Gone, behind them. Keep in mind the monkey rope. Pip shows up. Captain Ahab, sir, sir, here's Pip trying to get on board again. Trying to get on board again. The Manx man says, Peace, thou crazy loon, and grabs him. And Ahab, for the first time in the text, showing a concern for another person, says, Hands off that holiness. Where sayest thou Pip was, boy? Astern there, sir, astern, low, low. He's looking at the log. That's Pip. The line just broke. And Pip's trying to get on board again, sir. And, of course, this is Pip... That's his thing. Pip's been thrown into the sea and he rehearses it over and over and over again. Pip's crazy. But he's crazy in this special way. It goes right to the heart of it. Pip's trying to get on board. He's astern, sir. And the line has broken. Can something be done? Ahab says, I can mend it. And the question is, can he? Will he? Who art thou, boy? Says Ahab. I see not my reflection in the vacant pupils of thy eyes. Now that's... He's been able to see his reflection in everything else that glistens. And here and when he finally sees Starbuck shortly are the two times where he sees not his own reflection but something else. Here he doesn't know what he sees. He simply cannot see his own reflection. And so he's totally fascinated by it. After a while, it gets boring to see your own reflection, even if that's what you really want to see. And there's something about Pip that does not do that to him, so he's fascinated. He says, Who art thou, boy? I see not my reflection in the vacant pupils of thy eyes. Oh, God, that man should be such a thing for immortal souls to sieve through. Who art thou, boy? Bellboy, sir. Ship's crier. Ding, dong, ding. I mean, just, just practically without comment. He was, before he was the cock, he said, cock, cock, cock. The cock wakes you up, calls you out. Who are you? Bellboy. Ding, dong, ding. Calling. And Ahab, of course, sees, like when he looks up in the sky, he sees his own reflection too. There can be no hearts above the snow line. Oh, ye frozen heavens, look down here. Ye did beget this luckless child and have abandoned him, ye creative libertines. Here, boy, Ahab's cabin shall be Pip's home henceforth while Ahab lives. Thou touchest my inmost center, boy. Thou art tied to me by cords woven of my heart strings. Come, let's down. Two things. The line, the cord, the rope, the monkey rope, the connection. What happened to Ishmael Queequeg could happen to Ahab and Pip. Pip could be that connection that would save Ahab, another human being. And it looks very promising. He says we are, we, there is a cord that connects us. And he even uses Lear-like uh, terminology. Come, let's down. In the great storm scene, Lear says to his fool, My wits begin to turn. Come, my boy. How dost thou, boy? Art cold? I am cold myself. The art of our necessities is strange that can make vile things precious. Come, your hovel, poor fool and knave, I have one part in my heart that's sorry for thee yet. Come, see, let's go to the hovel. 
and become human beings. And here's Ahab. And it looks promising. And we'll have to see what the outcome of this is. And when he extends his hand to Ahab, Pip says, what's this? Here's velvet shark skin, intently gazing at Ahab's hand and feeling it. There's an oxymoron for you. Here's velvet shark skin. Ah, oh, now, had poor Pip but felt so kind a thing as this, perhaps he had ne'er been lost. A human hand. This seems to me, sir, as a man rope. See the connection? This is the man rope. Something that weak souls may hold by. Oh, sir, let old Perth now come and rivet these two hands together. Perth is the uh, blacksmith. Let, it all, let old Perth come and rivet these two hands together, the black one with the white one, for I will not let this go. It's a marriage. It's the marriage coming in. He's proposing marriage. Just as Queequeg and Ishmael had. Let's make this permanent. Like the monkey rope. And Ahab says, come then to my cabin. Come. And then we get a, the first hint that it's not going to work. I feel prouder leading thee by thy black hand than though I grasp the emperors and emperor. Prouder leading thee. He's made that connection, but he's very conscious and condescending about its implications. He's still... It is not that kind of mutual thing that happened between Ishmael and Quiquay. The uh, life boy scene comes next. Starts out very uh, ominously in a way. Steering now southeastward by Ahab's level steel and her progress solely determined by Ahab's level log and line, the Pequod held on her path towards the equator. Seems very fateful the way that starts out. Startled by a cry so plaintively wild and unearthly, like half-articulated wailings of the ghosts of all Herod's murdered innocents. They hear these strange cries, and they associate them with the ghost of Herod's murdered innocents. We must remember that at the end of the text, because it comes in very powerfully there. Ahab, and then they, the crew comes up with all kinds of strange, uh, fanciful interpretations of what these sounds may be. And Ahab hollowly laughed and explained them all away. But he didn't really. He simply, he tried to explain them away, but he simply explained them in different terms. Here's what, his, his explanation is summed up as this. Those rocky islands the ship had passed were the resort of great, num of great numbers of seals and some young seals that had lost their dams or some dams that had lost their cubs must have risen nigh the ship and kept company with her, crying and sobbing with their human sort of wail. In the sea, under certain circumstances, seals have more than once been mistaken for men. But keep in mind, and remind me, uh, if I forget, when we get to the end and the whole idea of Rachel weeping, uh, this idea that the cubs have been separated from their mothers and the wailing that is going up. See, Ahab tried to explain it away, but all he did is he explained another version of Herod's murdered innocence. That's still the dominant uh, symbolic uh, association here. But the boatings of the crew were destined to receive a most plausible confirmation in the fate of one of their number that morning. A cry was heard, a cry and a rushing, and looking up they saw a falling phantom in the air, and looking down, a little tossed heap of white bubbles in the blue of the sea. The uh, mastheadsman fell off, fell into the sea. And this is taken right out of uh, Virgil's Aeneid when Polynurus falls into the sea. 
And so they throw the life buoy out to him. And like the log and line, the life buoy sinks. And this is another indication of the bankruptcy. That which would save life will not save it. The life preserver sank. And so the life preserver would have to, or the life buoy would have to be replaced. And then the text says, by certain strange signs and innuendos, Queequeg hinted a hint concerning his coffin. Now, I'm going to save until the end where it will be more intelligible to us uh, this business about his coffin, uh, or at least skip a, a portion of it. Uh, but it was decided that his coffin would be used as a life buoy for the boat. Uh, and the carpenter, would, of course, would have to be the one to transform the life boy, in, the uh, coffin into a life boy. And uh, we'll return to that in the end. But uh, in the chapter called The Deck, the stage direction says, as this is being done by the, by the uh, carpenter, the coffin laid upon two line tubs between the vice bench and the open hatchway. Uh, now, line tubs we know are wedding cakes symbolically from before. So we have the coffin uh, stretched out on two symbolic wedding cakes between the vice bench and the open hatchway as just a picture of something. Of what? Ahab comes up the stairs and says, middle aisle of a church? What's here? And he tells Pip to go back down into his cabin. And Ahab speaks to the carpenter and he says, Art not thou the leg maker? Then tell me, art thou not an errant, all-grasping, intermeddling, monopolizing, heathenish old scamp to be one day making legs and the next day coffins to clap them in? And yet again the life boys out of, the, out of those same coffins. That's the fundamental question. Then. That's the that's the that's the the primordial question to be asking uh, somebody who knows. What is it? You make these legs and the creatures that go with them, and then you make coffins to put them in, and then you make life boys out of the coffins? What kind of a cosmos is this? What kind of a cosmos is this? That'll, all that will come back later. But you, he's, he's raised very, he's raised the, the perennial question. And then you get a kind of gravedigger scene like that one in Hamlet where Ahab says uh, to, the, to, the, uh, to the old... Uh, Carpenter, hast thou ever helped carry a beer and heard the coffin knock against the churchyard gate going in? And the carpenter starts to answer. He says, Faith, sir, I've... Faith? Says Ahab. Faith? He stops him. What's that? Like Pilate saying, Truth? What's truth? Faith? What's that? Why, sir, why, faith, sir, it's only a sort of exclamation-like, that's all. But there's this sudden faith? And after the carpenter tells him that, Ahab says, there's something here to be pondered. He says, oh. he says, can it be that in some spiritual sense the coffin is, after all, but an immortality preserver? I'll think of that. But No. So far gone am I in the dark side of earth that in its other side the theoretic bright one is but certain twilight to me. Here's what Macbeth said. I am in blood stepped in so far that should I wade no more returning were as tedious as go o'er. Faith? Coffins? Life preservers? I should think about that, he says, but no, I'm not. 
too late for me to think about that. And so they meet the Rachel, the ship the Rachel, and the captain of the ship is frantic. The Rachel is zigzagging around the ocean, frantically looking for a lost crew, one of one of the members of which was the 12-year-old son of the captain, and the captain's name is Captain Gardner. And the captain said, pleaded with Ahab, help me find my crew and my son. I'll pay you. 48 hours. Help me find them. Ahab still stood like an anvil, receiving every shock but without the least quivering of his own. And he said no because he has a white whale to chase. People are starving in Africa. People are being slaughtered in the jungles of Nicaragua, Honduras. I'm sorry, but we've got to stop the evil empire. And so they sailed away, and there's an interesting thing in the text. Remember, the captain's name is Gardner. The Rachel's masts and yards were thickly clustered with men as three tall cherry trees when boys are cherrying among the boughs. And why? Because they're all looking for the lost ones. And it is looking for the lost ones that creates community. It's caring for the missing ones that creates that kind of original community. The chapter called The Cabin, the stage directions say, Ahab moving to go on deck. Pip catches him by the hand to follow. Lad, lad, I tell thee, thou must not follow Ahab now. The hour is coming when Ahab would not scare thee from him, yet would not have thee by him. There is that in thee, poor lad, which I feel too curing to my malady. Like cures like. And for this hunt, my malady becomes my most desired health. And that's, in Dante's hell, everybody who's there wants to be there, chooses it, as Charlie says about the souls in hell, they hate the, hate the addiction and love the fix. Ahab knows that Pip can cure him, but he chooses the disease because it is expedient. Because his neurosis gets the job done because the neurosis will get the job done. And the cure may not. And Pip says, Oh, good master, master, master. And Ahab says, Weep so and I will murder thee. The symphony, I want to quote at length from this because it is, it, it is Ahab's last opportunity for that human connection that might bring him back from his uh, monomania. Ahab leans over the side of the ship and this beautiful passage, the stepmother world, so long cruel, forbidding, now threw affectionate arms around his stubborn neck and did seem to joyously sob over him as if over one that however willful and erring she could yet find it in her heart to save and to bless. From beneath his slouched hat, Ahab dropped a tear into the sea nor did all the Pacific contain such wealth as that one wee drop. Nobody could have written that except somebody who had read Coleridge's Ancient Mariner. In the Ancient Mariner story, the mariner there is on the sea and everything is dead. Everything is dead and he has the albatross around his neck. And he looks out and uh, in the slanting light and the, and the little waves of the sea, he sees creepy crawly things for as far as he can see. And there's nothing alive except him and these slimy, crawly things. And involuntarily, inexplicably, he loves them. And the albatross drops from his neck and life comes back. And so here's the Ahab version of that. The tear comes off his cheek and drops into the Pacific. And there's an opportunity. And one of the reasons I wanted to have us think about this in terms of a conversion is what happens next. Ahab turned. 
That's what a conversion means. To turn around. Ahab turned. Starbuck, who's standing there next to him. Sir? Oh, Starbuck, it is a mild, mild wind and a mild-looking sky. On such a day, very much such a sweetness as this, I struck my first whale, a boy harpooner of eighteen, forty, forty, forty years ago. Forty years in the wilderness. Forty years in the desert. The wander, forty years of wandering. The archetypal desert experience. And his whole life has been in the desert. Forty years of continual wailing. Forty years of privation and peril. When I think of this life I have led, the desolation of solitude it has been, the masoned, walled town of a captain's exclusiveness, which admits but small entrance to any sympathy from green country without, oceans away from that girl wife I wedded past fifty, and sailed for Cape Horn the next day, leaving but one dent in my marriage pillow. Wife? Wife? Rather a widow with her husband alive. Aye, I widowed that poor girl when I married her, Starbuck. And then the madness, the frenzy, the boiling blood, and the smoking brow, with which for a thousand lowerings old Ahab has furiously, foamingly chased his prey. More a demon than a man. Aye, aye, what a forty years fool. Fool, old fool has old Ahab been. God, 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 crack my heart. Close. Stand close to me, Starbuck. Let me look into a human eye. It is better than to gaze into the sea or sky, better than to gaze upon God. By the green land, by the bright hearthstone, this is the magic glass, man. I see my wife and my child in thine eye. No, no, stay on board, on board. Lower not when I do. When branded Ahab gives chase to Moby Dick, that hazard shall not be thine. No, no, not with the faraway home I see in that eye. And Starbuck, you have to understand, Starbuck, I think, is as psychologically... Ahab's son. Because his response is that response of an offspring. When the old tyrant, after having shown nothing but armor for all those years, finally shows a chink in the armor. And the whole world will melt and flow into that chink if it can. I mean, it's so, there's such a tremendous outpouring at that moment. And Starbuck says, Oh, my captain, my captain, noble soul. Grand old heart after all. Why should anyone give chase to that hated fish? Away with me. Let us fly these deadly waters. Let us home. Wife and child, too, are Starbucks. And then Ahab begins to muse to just a daydream about his, about home. It is his noon nap now. The boy vicariously wakes, sits up in bed, and his mother tells him of me, of cannibal old me, how I am abroad upon the deep, but will yet come back to dance him again. Starbuck responds in kind. Tis my Mary, my Mary herself. She promised that my boy every morning should be carried to the hill to catch the first glimpse of his father's sail. Come, my captain. Study out the course and let us away. See, see, the boy's face from the window, the boy's hand on the hill. Now that has to be the trump card, does it not? I mean, if that won't do it, nothing will. And to see, to understand even more the psychological matrix of this whole thing, you have to go back and see the verb. Every She promised that my boy every morning should be carried to the hill to catch the first glimpse of his father's sail. He's crippled. There's no other reference to that and it's not totally clear. But I think to understand Ahab, Starbuck's connection to Ahab, one has to understand that Starbuck has a crippled child. And he just played his trump card with Ahab. Think of that. 
the boy's face from the window, the boy's hand from the hill. But Ahab's glance was averted. Like a blighted fruit tree, he shook and cast his last cindered apple to the soil. What is it? What nameless, inscrutable, unearthly thing is it? What cozening, hidden lord and master and cruel, remorseless emperor commands me that against all natural lovings and longings I so keep pushing and crowding and jamming myself on all the time? Starbuck? But blanched to a corpse's hue with despair, the maid had stolen away. But the question is still on the plate. What is it? What nameless, inscrutable thing is it that has hold of Ahab? Ahab crossed the deck to gaze over on the other side, but stared at two reflected fixed eyes in the water there, Fadala was motionlessly leaning over the same rail. He looked directly into the eyes of Starbuck and it put him in touch with his humanity that might have saved him, but it wasn't enough and he goes to the other side and sees the reflected eyes of Fadala and he's in his grip again. In the second day of the chase, Ahab loses his leg he leans on Starbuck and he says, I, I, Starbuck, tis sweet to lean sometimes, be the leaner who he will. And would old Ahab had leaned oftener than he had. Upon mustering the company, the Parsi was not there. Badala is gone. Ahab says, find him. Not gone, not gone. Nowhere to be found. Aye, aye, sir, said Stubb, caught among the tangles of your line. I thought I saw him dragging under. My line? My line, says Ahab. Gone? What means that little word? Because Ahab's going to die the way he died. And Ahab now realizes he's going to die in the tangles of his own line. The final day of the chase. Remember Ishmael and Queequeg when they got married? They put their foreheads together. Queequeg put his forehead against Ishmael's and said, We're married. I'll die for you. Ahab says, Forehead to forehead, I meet thee this third time, Moby Dick. One last chance. Quote, Their hands met, their eyes fastened, Starbucks tears the glue. Ahab and Starbuck one last time and the only glue was Starbuck's tears and it wasn't quite enough. A seahawk comes and grabs the flag off the mainmast. And Ahab says, oh, excuse me, and Fadala was seen lashed to the whale by the line. Somehow strangely gotten tied to the whale. So the very focus of this insanity is now one with the whale. And Ahab orders Tashtigo to nail another flag to the mast. And we'll come to that later. And in the chase, Ahab is blinded. Ahab staggered. His hands smote his forehead. I grow blind. Hands stretch out before me that I may grope my way. Is it night? His last words are, Thus, I give up the spear. The Gospel of John, it says, bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Ahab, thus I give up my spear. To the very last, the harpoon darted, the stricken whale flew forward with, light, with igniting velocity. The, whale, the line ran through the groove and ran foul. Ahab stood to clear it. He did clear it. But the flying turn caught him round the neck and voicelessly as, a Turk as Turkish mutes bowstring their victim, he was shot out of the boat ere the crew knew he was gone. And now this very strange scene at the end, totally surrealistic. At that instant, 
A red arm and hammer hovered backwardly, uplifted in the open air in the act of nailing the flag faster and yet faster to the subsiding spar. If some Ahab finally destroys what Bucky Fuller calls Spaceship Earth, it will be with this in the background. It will be with somebody nailing the flag up. It, the, the, the ominousness of this image is so powerful. In the very, the ship is sinking. The, the whale stole the ship. It's sinking. And sinking, the only thing sticking up out of the waters is this man nailing the flag to the masthead. A skyhawk that tauntingly had followed the main truck downwards from its natural home among the stars, pecking at the flag and incommoding Tashtigo there, this bird now chanced to intercept its broad fluttering wing between the hammer and the wood. And simultaneously feeling that ethereal thrill the submerged savage beneath in his death gra grasp kept his hammer frozen there. And so the bird of heaven with archangelic shrieks and his imperial beak thrust upward and his whole captive form folded in the flag of Ahab went down with his ship, which, like Satan, would not sink to hell till she had dragged the living part of heaven along with her and helmeted herself with it. I think there's a br part of this is just the sense that this is so much of this is a sin against the Holy Spirit. All of the inspiration, all of the offering of transformation has been turned into more monomania. The great shroud of the sea rolled on as it rolled 5,000 years ago. And then the epilogue, and I, I want to read the parts of this and then reflect for a few minutes on it. The drama's done. Why then here does anyone step forth? Step forth is a strange thing to say when you're floating in the middle of the sea. There's, a, I think, a reference here to the, to the tomb. Why does anyone step forth? Because one did survive the wreck. Because one did survive the wreck. That's a line out of some old pilgrim hymn. Because one did survive the wreck. Ishmael had floated on the margin of the ensuing scene, round and round then, and ever contracting towards the button-like black bubble at the axis of that slowly wheeling circle like another ixion I did revolve, till gaining that vital center, the black bubble upward burst, and now liberated by reason of its cunning spring and owing to its own great buoyancy rising with great force, the coffin life boy shot lengthwise from the sea. I just want to point symbolically to this phrase, till gaining that vital center, the black bubble upward burst. It seems to me that that is the mysterious nature of it. But to experience that black bubble bursting upwards is part of the resurrection. And it was a coffin that shot up out of the water right there. Now you remember you remember back in the spouter end scene when Ishmael when Ishmael had first met Queequeg and he said he thought Queequeg was going to kill him. He thought Queequeg meant death. And he called out, Coffin Peter Coffin Save me. Coffin, save me. He thought Ishmael, he thought Queequeg meant death. This is Queequeg's coffin. It means life. And he floated there on the coffin and then he, and then, and then the devious cruising Rachel, remember Rachel the ship looking for, and he says, the devious cruising Rachel, that in her retracing search after her missing children only found another orphan. Last word of the book, orphan. I want to read uh, about Rachel. Prophet Jeremiah says, Thus speaks Yahweh, A woe is heard in Ramah, lamenting and weeping bitterly. It is Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. 
Yahweh says this, Stop your weeping, dry your eyes, your hardships will be redressed. They shall come back from the enemy country. There is hope for your descendants. Your sons will come home to their own lands. The Pequod sailed on Christmas Day. And I've read part of the Christmas story before from the Gospel of Matthew, but now I'm going to read the whole thing. After they had left, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up and take the child and his mother with you and escape into Egypt and stay there until I tell you, because Herod intends to search for the child and to do away with him. So Joseph got up and taking the child and his mother with him, left that night for Egypt where he stayed until Herod was dead. This was to fulfill what the Lord said when he had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, and in Bethlehem and its surrounding district he had all the male children killed who were two years old or, or under, reckoning by the date he had been careful to ask the wise men. It was then that the words spoken through the prophet Jeremiah were fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, sobbing and loudly lamenting. It was Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they were no more. They had sailed and heard those things they thought might be sealed. They sounded like the Herod's murdered innocence. The whole thing is being played out with that as the background. And Rachel searching for her children and weeping is the image of that which can save us. Last word of the book is orphan. Orphan. But it was at the point of discovering that he was an orphan that he was adopted. His adoption did not do away with the fact that he was an orphan. I want to reflect on that a little bit. First, I want to read a poem by E.E. E. Cummings, having to do maybe with being an orphan. No time ago or else in a life, walking in the dark, I met Christ. Jesus, my heart, flopped over and lay still while he passed as close as I'm to you. Yes, closer made of nothing except loneliness. Simon Weil, great writer and mystic of the French in the middle of the century, died in the 40s, came this close to converting to the Roman Catholic Church. She was Jewish. She said, I can't convert, really. She knew it. She, she understood Christianity so well. She understood it so well. She said, as long as there's anybody outside the church, I must be among them. Now, how's that for a conversion? She said, I love the church so much, I would give anything to be part of it, but as long as anybody's outside of it, I must be among them. So he was an orphan. And so I was thinking we might think of Christianity as a home for the homeless. That maybe it ought to see itself as a home for the homeless where one is at home in having found fellow orphans in whose fellowship homesickness can glow in the end like a warm heart. And now one of the most amazing things of this whole text Back to building, back to the coffin being converted into a lifeboat. It seemed absurd. It does seem absurd, doesn't it? It seemed totally absurd. A lifeboat of a coffin, cried Starbuck, starting. Rather queer, that, I'd say, said Stubb. It will make a good one enough, a good enough one, said Flask. The carpenter here can arrange it easily. So you want to, if you want to turn the coffin into life, boy, you need the carpenter. Is that right? Rig it, carpenter. Do not look at me so. The coffin, I mean. Dost thou hear me? Rig it. The carpenter's not so sure of this. And you have to, to watch this motion. It's very, it's underscored in the text, so all you have to do is watch. Now I'll do it with my hand. The carpenter says, and shall I nail down the lid, sir, moving his hand as with a hammer? Shall I nail down the lid, sir? Aye. 
And shall I caulk the seam, sir, moving his hand as with a caulking iron? Aye. And shall I then pay back over the same with the pitch, sir, moving his hand as with a pitch pot? Aye. How do you, how do you make a coffin into a life preserver or a life book? Shall I nail it down, sir? Yes. Shall I caulk the seams, sir? Yes. Shall I pitch the seams, sir? Yes. Then I do this, sir. How do you, how do you make it into a? Isn't that it? Isn't that amazing? And then the carpenter says, "It's like turning an old coat. Going to bring the flesh on the other side now." I don't like this cobbling sort of business. I don't like it at all. It's undignified. It's not my place. Let tinkerers' brats do tinkerings. We are their betters. I like to take in hand none but clean, virgin, fair and square mathematical jobs, something that rarely begins at the beginning and is at the middle when midway, and comes to an end at the conclusion. Not a cobbler's job that's at an end in the middle, and at the beginning at the end. This concludes Reflections on Herman Melville's Moby Dick. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.